Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. This is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Nikki Lovegrove. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And today I've got Sharon Bessel as my co-host. Sharon has recently been on our podcast, A Vision for the North, with PDU and Quentin Grafton. She is guest editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. She has expertise in social policy, social justice, and human rights. Welcome, Sharon, to the podcast. Hi, Nikki. It's great to be back. So the last time you were on the pod was for our episode on Northern Australia. What have you been up to since then? Have you been well and healthy? Uh, I have for the most part. I've actually been in Indonesia, in South Sulawesi. Um, Earlier this year, we did an individual deprivation measure study there, um, which was measuring multidimensional poverty from a a perspective that's sensitive to gender. And we were back uh, last week talking to local government officials about how they can use the data and how we can help um, ideally help to inform some of the policy decisions that they're making at local levels. So we had a great reception and it was really exciting, fantastic actually. Oh, very good. So maybe we'll hear a little bit about that on some of the um, upcoming sections on the in poverty section. Uh, I think you certainly will. Very good. <laughs> well, let's turn now to the topic of today's podcast. Australian listeners will be aware of the violent attack last week in the centre of Melbourne. A man set a ute on fire and went on a knife rampage in Burke Street, killing one bystander and injuring two others before he was shot down by police. The bystander he killed was 74-year-old Sisto Malaspina, the popular co-owner of local espresso bar Pellegrini, whose tragic death has led to an outpouring of grief in Melbourne and on social media from the many people who knew him. The knife attack is being investigated as a terrorist incident, with several media outlets also suggesting untreated mental health issues as a factor behind the violence. And perhaps predictably, the event has again raised questions about whether Australia has got its counter-terror settings right and whether increased public safety measures are necessary to prevent such events in the future. In the past few years, the Australian government has driven a number of legislative changes in the name of countering terrorism. And at the same time, we've also seen increasing public safety measures in our cities, often in the form of large concrete or steel blocks guarding the entrance of high foot traffic areas. In a time where livability and quality of life are key considerations in city architecture, these changes can be controversial. Indeed, the installation of the bollards in Melbourne last year was greeted by a counter-protest that went viral on social media, with people responding by decorating them and putting them on Twitter with the hashtag bollard. So are stricter anti-terror laws and the civic changes that accompany them a reasonable price to pay for a reduced risk of terrorist activity? How can policymakers find the balance between public safety and civil liberty? We've got a fantastic lineup of guests to discuss these questions. Today, we'll be hearing from a national security expert, a legal scholar, and an ethicist. So I'd like to start by introducing Jacinta Carroll. Jacinta is the Director of National Security Policy at the National Security College. Her research interests include national security, counterterrorism, and strategic policy. 
And she's previously been on our Women in National Security podcast series, talking to Chris Farnham about diversity in Australia's national security community. Welcome, Jacinta. Very nice to be here with you. We've also got Dominique Dallapoza. Dominique is a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law and was the co-convener of the ACT chapter of the Electoral Regulation Research Network. Her research deals with Australian public law and Australian national security law, so also a very good person to have with us. Welcome, Dominique. Thanks for having me. Finally, we've got Christian Barry. Christian is a professor of philosophy at the ANU Research School of Social Sciences and co-editor of the Journal of Political Philosophy. He has a background in political theory and philosophy, applied ethics and international justice. And he's also previously been on the podcast in the episode, Are Policymakers Unethical? Welcome back, Christian. Thanks for having me again. So just a reminder to listeners, please get in touch with us about this episode or any other episodes of the podcast. You can reach us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And just a reminder to stick around after the main interview, because Sharon and I will be discussing some of your listener comments and questions. But for now, let's dig into the topic. I'd like to start with a broad question to each of you. What's your view on what really appears to be a deep tension between public safety on the one hand and civic, civil liberty on the other? And has Australia got the balance right at the moment? Um, Jacinta, perhaps we could start with you. What, what are your That's thoughts? a fantastic question, Sharon. And I think as I'm looking at my colleagues here, we would probably all agree this is the great issue and question in liberal democracies. Uh, who are facing great threat. It is a it is the significant issue for these types of countries. Unfortunately, the threat that we face comes from typically uh, state actors that are authoritarian and don't uh, identify civil liberties as being a high priority, typically don't recognise human rights, or from non-state actors. Um, we've been talking about terrorism here. And terrorist organisations, of course, um, aren't responsible to any constituency in a, in a way that we would recognise democratically, certainly don't ascribe to human rights. So for a country like ours, um, the, the Australian government just last year in the Foreign Policy White Paper uh, set values such as human rights and uh, protecting democracy as core foundation values domestically and internationally. For countries like ours, it is really hard if you're trying to undertake uh, intrusive investigations, particularly into your citizens, if you're looking to uh, hold them um, deprive them of liberty for a short time in order to prevent or further investigate a security issue, that is really significant. Um, in my observation um, in this space, particularly since 9-11, so the 17 years that Australia's really been focusing on the current threat of terrorism, that tension is very well understood politically. It's very well understood by commentators. And overall, I think we get the balance right and we do get the balance right because there is a tension. The two issues of civil liberties and security are always being examined, always being weighed up. Dominique, from, from a legal perspective particularly, what's, what are your thoughts on this? So um, I would endorse what Jacinta has said, that it is an, a perennial tension. Um, what I'd add to that is the importance of making sure that as a democratic country, we enlist all of our democratic institutions to be able to help us to do this very difficult job of balancing um, two very important um, imperatives for government and the state. Like it's absolutely essential that the um, Australian government keep Australians as safe as it's possible for them to be. But we also need to make sure that as a democratic country, we don't lose sight 
of those civil liberties and, and our commitment to human rights that make us such an important, vibrant democracy. And I think in the work that I've done that I can see real potential for making sure that our democratic institutions are harnessed to be able to, to for us to draw that balance as best we can. Christian... Perhaps in, in these discussions, what we always need is an ethicist. Um, <laughs> what, what's your thinking on some of these issues? And, and what are the ethical issues that we're really mm. struggling with here? Right. So one thing I think that's probably pretty important to, to recognize is that even if there's a tension between civil liberties and public safety, that doesn't guarantee that any reduction in civil liberties is going to actually enhance security. Often restrictions of civil liberties can erode security. First of all, they erode the security of people whose lives are interfered with by the state. In a way, it's kind of a misleading thing to think about it simply as a trade-off between liberty and safety. It's trading off different types, risks of different types of interference in your life. Um, a second thing is that I think that when we're talking about terrorism, there are really two aspects to the security issues. One is the objective security. Obviously, when people get killed, that suggests that there's a real risk of other people being killed. We might call that sort of the object risk of you suffering some sort of harm. But then there's also the subjective component, which is that one death in traffic doesn't have nearly the psychological effect on people than one stabbing by a deranged person in downtown Melbourne. Um, and there's an interesting question about how seriously we should take these subjective characteristics that these attacks have in addition to merely the objective attacks because many commentators are quick to point out that if you actually look at the number of fatalities, the number of deaths, it's minuscule the number of people who have been killed as a result of terrorist activity compared to nearly any other type of risk in public safety. So there's the question about just how how serious a risk this really is, and to what extent should we be focusing simply on the likelihood that any particular Australian might be harmed in, through such an attack, or do we have to take more into consideration this subjective feeling of unsafety? And of course, there's the worry that the media and politicians often fuel this sense of subjective lack of safety because it plays to their interests in driving up viewership. People are interested in these things. And also, if it's so far as you're in government, in getting more power to the executive. So I want to touch on whether or not Australia is responding in a proportional manner to terrorism a bit later on the pod. Um, but for now, I just want to hear from Jacinta and refer to last week's attack in Melbourne. So the incident was a pretty clear reminder that we have a challenge of preventing terrorist attacks, especially when they're committed by individuals who are using household items um, as a means of violence. So my question is, is it reasonable to expect that Australia should have seen this attack coming? Well, there are a few things in that. Well, there's a lot in your question, and I'll, I'll probably um, address it in looking at three particular areas. And one is the threat, the type of threat that we saw on Friday. The other is prevention. And I might just touch on some of the really important points that Christian raised. And then there is the response. So how did agencies respond on the day? Um, in terms of the threat, we have heard um, from the appropriate authorities in government, so the so Duncan Lewis, who's the head of ASIO, um, the authority on saying what the, the threat level is, uh, he has stated for more than four years that we have a high threat level, uh, probable in the nomenclature that's used, which means that there are terrorist groups that have the intent and the capability to undertake attacks. What he's also said consistently is that uh, agencies with 
a range of powers and resources they have are working together and doing a pretty good job in being able to prevent the um, uh, the more lethal types of attacks, so mass casualty attacks. But it is very difficult for a range of reasons, um, the sort of indicators and signatures that a lone actor might might have. It's very difficult to prevent a lone actor attack. So he has consistently said, uh, Andrew Colvin, the Commissioner of Police, uh, Graham Ashton, the, the Victorian Chief Commissioner, have all said, this is the type of attack that will actually occur because it's very, very difficult to to respond to it. Secondly, on prevention, um, it, what I was reflecting as Christian was talking, and it's absolutely right in understanding, well, what... what um, Really, is the relative nature of the the, the liberties being um, uh, being constrained um, by comparison to the the nature of the problem and and the real threat? One of the issues in terrorism is that it's um, very very difficult to prevent uh, to uh, measure successful prevention. The only things that we do have to go by so far in Australia isn't actually the now seven successful lone actor attacks that have occurred in the last four years. Uh, so Curtis Cheng's murder, Farad Jabbar's attack in, in Never Hills, and of course the Lynn Cafe amongst others. Uh, I think that the better way of thinking about the threat and how we balance these very serious ethical issues that Christians raised is to look at what might have happened if those investigative powers weren't in place. And for that, we just have to look to the number of 14 major mass casualty plots that have been stopped by authorities just in the last four years. And uh, while we look at Australia and say, okay, that, that threat level is really high, but nothing much has happened. We just saw this um, reasonably incompetent guy who um, wasn't able to detonate canisters from his, from his ute on Friday. Um, he stabbed um, a, a good Samaritan who was trying to help him, who was an elderly man. That's really not very sophisticated. But what we have seen just in the last two years is a very sophisticated attempt to detonate a device on an Etihad flight coming mm -hmm. from Sydney Airport, directed, we know, um, and technical support provided by ISIS in the Middle East. Uh, we saw the same group seek to uh, release um, toxic gases in a crowded place in Sydney. And just on two years ago, a disruption of a major uh, multiple venue mass casualty plot using explosives, firearms and, and bladed weapons in the Melbourne CBD at Christmas. So again, it's really hard to measure, but I'd say probably our best indicator of are we getting the investiga investigative powers uh, and other measures uh, and the, the physical security measures that you were talking about, are they right? Well, they're doing their job in preventing that significant harm on the community. Very quickly on, on the response, what we did see on the day in, in Melbourne is that the kind of attack that authorities have said was likely um, was responded to within minutes and contained. Uh, we saw emergency service uh, personnel very bravely go in and put out the fire that could have detonated um, you know, explosion and, and shrapnel affecting, uh, affecting members of the public. We'll, we'll have to see what happens with the investigation, but it may well be that um, that individual or, or others have planned to detonate that type of device or run over pedestrians in uh, mall areas. And of course, Burke Street Mall, as you mentioned, and others um, do have bollards. Um, they've also have in, in uh, Melbourne just this year put out some more extensive CCTV capability, um, sirens to warn the public, 
and uh, text messages going out, which they use for disaster response as well. And I've spoken to a lot of people who received those and did exactly what they were supposed to do and get away from the area. So that prevention and response is actually working quite well. Um, The last thing I'd say on that is just that this is a a crime Mm -hmm. and we cannot... Um, regardless of anything that we do, we can never completely get rid of a crime type. The terrorism piece, it will always be an issue while there is a significant inspiration and direction coming from a major terrorist group. And I would just um, point out that from a legal perspective, we're in a very different space 17 years after 9-11 than we were back in 2001. So many of your listeners will be familiar with the fact that prior to um, the events of 9-11, there was not one piece of Commonwealth legislation that was specifically directed towards countering terrorism. Now, um, the numbers are a little bit fuzzy because um, how you classify uh, counterterrorism law is an academic debate in and of itself. But the figure that I usually use is that we're close to around 70 pieces of legislation that deal with our ability to combat terrorism, which means that over the last 17 years, we've passed an awful lot of legislation at the Commonwealth level to ensure that our intelligence agencies and other police forces are, are properly equipped to be able to deal with the threat of terrorism. But again, as Jacinta said, there it's a crime. There's nothing we we cannot guarantee um, zero zero crime, or, or you know, it's it's just not possible to be able to do that. Yeah, Jacinta was completely right to point out that when we're looking at the magnitude of these risks, we don't want to just look at cases where this risk actually matures into a harm. We want to look at cases where there was a risk that was prevented. And of course, there are other things which we don't even have direct information about, which is sort of the deterrent effect, even in terms of formulating Mm. plots that can get to that point where they look like a fully mature risk. But of course, when we're talking about our problem that we started out with about how we, to what extent we want to restrict civil liberties or what kind of anti-terrorism legislation we have, we also need to look at a further counterfactual, which is to what extent are those foiled plots, were they foiled because of all these extra safety measures or were they the sorts of plots that would have been foiled by ordinary types of criminal detection and those plots that did actually mature into actual harms, would those be the sorts of things that would have prevent, been prevented had we further restricted certain types of civil liberties or not? So there's a lot of different variables to look at in thinking about that particular, how to resolve that particular tension. That's another great point. And it is, I have to say, I have to commend you for bringing a philosopher and a lawyer in as well as a, <laughs> a national security person um, in to talk about it. Look, one of the one of the, the questions that you started with was, how do we keep that balance? What kind of evaluation and oversight do we have? And um, what, what Christian's pointed out there is that we really need to ensure that we have effective and ongoing oversight, review and evaluation. In the national security space, it's a little bit under the radar, Mm. but um, all of the legislation that that Dominic's talked about, every single piece of this has some form of evaluation. And it depends on which agency is the the primary, has primary responsibility, what sort of body it would be. But there is an an independent national security legislation monitor. um, And there is the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security looking over intelligence agencies. There's the Commonwealth Ombudsman and various other ombudsman, uh, Ombudsman positions. And of course, we also have the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, which has full review of all legislation before it is passed 
And in all but one case I can think of, that's included a public inquiry. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of scrutiny and also sunset clauses in some of the legislation. So these things have inbuilt mechanisms. And the thing that takes a lot of time for agencies and and causes them some frustration, but when I speak to them, everyone says we do need it, is that they need to have these powers scrutinised. And just as Chris said, well, what did you use it for? Yeah, what happened in this particular case? Is this worth keeping? And indeed, oversight and increased oversight is routinely mentioned in these um, debates around enacting new laws as kind of the prid quo, prid, quid pro quo um, that agencies now expect. If we are asking for um, greater powers, we can expect a greater level of oversight. And in fact, it's one of the big um, untold success stories, really. I think just how successful Australia's oversight um, environment now is. It's become much more complex in the last uh, 10 years or so than it was um, 10 years before that. And they do a, as good a job as I think it's possible to do um, to be able to keep an, a watching brief on this. As uh, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said, we can't afford these laws to be, we can't set and forget them. An important part of not setting and forgetting them is making sure that we have really robust oversight mechanisms that are linked into our democratic system of government in a really important way. Just yesterday, um, I, I was watching the news and saw the Assistant Commissioner Ross Gunther from Victoria Police, who's commander of their Counterterrorism Command, who in talking about powers actually said something really interesting. He said, look, the threat right now is such that we need all of these things. And while we continue to need them, we will have them. But one day, um, yeah, my word's not his, but the, the implication was, well, one day we'll be able to say we don't need those anymore and we look forward to that. So there's a, there is an awareness. Mm. Just to play the devil's advocate mm. on that, I, Christian, I'd like to hear your views on this because I think you, you point out those that legislation is often created with the sunset clauses built in and it's why we need it. But do we face a, a, an issue um, of not necessarily recognising when we no longer need it or accepting a new normal and and Mm. saying, well, these things are in place, so we should simply keep them. Christian, any thoughts? Yeah, so I think seldom when states take more power, do they give it back? Mm. That's probably an iron law of political Mm. economy. Um, So that's one thing to to think about. Um, The other thing is that there are all kinds of reasons why that might be true. So imagine that you do build in sunset clauses, but you're coming up to the end of this legislation. It's sort of become part of the background that people sort of take for granted. If you actually remove that legislation and something bad happens, the potential cost to you well, not just the potential cost, but the potential costs for you politically are quite significant. Not only that, of course, when we think about the apparatus involved in having enhanced surveillance and stuff, it's there are the whole industries that are built up around it. Um, and they, of course, have interests and they have interests in in playing up the threats. And I'm not sort of just attributing bad faith, but you see how this happens, right? So, And if you actually look at um, one of the things that often happens is that policy and people are scrambling to make policy in the aftermath of some really mm-hmm. salient event. Um, and if you look at what thing people are usually saying right after a salient event, if you look back in history about everything from poison gasket attacks in, in Japan to 9-11, all the commentators are saying, this is not sort of an aberration. This is not sort of an outlier. This is the first of many such things that were going to come. And in each of these cases, it seems that they were actually wildly exaggerating 
the degree of threat that people were under. And yet this has a lot of traction. Mm. Power does get concentrated. Um, I'm partly playing devil's advocate with you, Sharon, here. <laughs> and that it would be a little bit naive for us to think that once states get power of that sort, that they're going to be very likely to relinquish it. So I want to turn the conversation to one particular example of a piece of legislation. And in the wake of the attack on Friday, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton um, again proposed that law enforcement should have the ability to gain access to encrypted communications. And that goes back to some of the prevention tools that you were talking about, intercepting communications between Australia and potentially the Middle East. And I want to hear from Dominique on this one when it comes to the the legal aspect of this. Um, so Australia, unlike the United States, doesn't have a Bill of Rights. It doesn't have um, this clear legal mechanism for people to, um, you know, make a claim about their civil liberties being violated um, in the same way that the United States seems to. Um, is this something to worry about when it comes to the debate about encryption and, and counterterrorism? I, I don't know that I'd necessarily frame it as something to worry about just because it's a it's a key, it's a feature of our constitutional framework. We are um, notoriously averse to having um, put uh, formalised rights in our constitutional structure. And however much people might think that's a good idea, it's just not an argument that we've been able to successfully run in Australia to try and get sort of higher level constitutionally entrenched rights um, be a feature of the Australian democratic system. So my response to that is to go, well, that's the environment that we're living in. So how can we um, use what we've got to try and better um, protect civil liberties in the face of um, a real threat and given that we've got some very difficult issues to deal with. Um, the Assistance and Access Bill, which is the legislation that you're referring to, is very complicated um, legislation. It's currently before the parliament and in in a way is a good case study of the um, point I was making earlier in the podcast about how we can actually use our democratic institutions to try and build some of those concerns about civil liberties into the process. Um, what Australians, I think, really need to take into account, given that we have no Bill of Rights, is that our best opportunity to get legislation which does in some way try and get a balance between security imperatives and the important protection of civil liberties is to intervene before the legislation's been put in place. So that particular bill has um, already gone, is in the middle of one form of, of consultation. So the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security that Jacinta mentioned is currently reviewing that act. It has um, received over 80 submissions um, to that particular act from a, a wide variety of stakeholders. So the Department of Home Affairs has submitted to that inquiry. So has the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, who is the government official with most um, direct uh, concern for privacy. And it's in looking at that particular parliamentary committee's uh, deliberations and work that you can see these difficult issues of rights and security and that tension being worked through. Um, prior to that, the Department of Home Affairs also um, released an exposure draft of the legislation and put that out for um, a form of public consultation. So again, with, it's important to see just how um, inventive Australia's democratic um, mechanisms have been in trying to deal with this tension, given that our constitution doesn't really give us very much at all to go on. I should add that having a constitution with an entrenched Bill of Rights is is certainly no adequate safeguard necessarily <laughs> against um, excessive use of preventive detention and treating people as resources of information rather than as people with rights, as mm. my own country of origin is is good proof. So, 
I might just make a few few comments on from Dominique's um, on the uh, encrypted communications issue, and this this is a really interesting one because um, it's it's one that has its genesis in uh, outsourcing of things that used to be or and privatisation of telecommunications that used to be managed by government. So and also the development of the types of technologies that we have. So. Yeah, 20 years, 30, 40 years ago, the idea of being able to having having a, an extremist be able to direct a 15 year old kid in Sydney from from Syria on how to download WhatsApp, and then talk to them about how they might undertake an attack in Sydney, which, which has happened, um, would not be conceivable. So now it has. We have a complex environment. We have a range of players, and. Um, governments around the world, liberal democratic governments, are trying to figure out, well, how do we make sure that we have the kinds of um, uh, access um, that we would need if, if we could lawfully reach the threshold to get that access? How do we ensure that the mechanisms are in place to be able to do that? And very importantly, how do we do this in partnership with business? Mm. Uh, I look at something like uh, WhatsApp and, and Telegram and other, other forms of communication and I am certain uh, that the American businesses that developed those technologies and even the US military in most cases, which is the the original creator of a lot of this code, never developed these in order to be able to assist criminals and terrorists undertake attacks. Um, They did it because it was good business. WhatsApp is free, uh, but Facebook bought it for $1.9 billion. So that means Mm -hmm. it was a a, a profit-led investment for them. And uh, it's a, it's about understanding with those those organisations. Well, as you build your next level of capability, please be a responsible member of the community as well, and try to figure out how together we try to put some controls over that, so that you are responsible for the thing that you are putting out there um, in an appropriate way. I really liked when when this came up with the G20 mm-hmm. um, early last year, uh, early in, early in 2017. Uh, we had some pretty strong statements being made by the UK and US governments saying, you companies have just got to come up to the party and you've got to give us access. And they talked about backdoors and so on. The Australian government at that time, and Attorney General was was George Brandis, said, we think it's really important we get um, some way that this, is, this stops being an enabler for terrorists mm-hmm. and, and organised crime. We don't know technically how you best do that, but we would like to work together with industry. And talking with members of the telecommunications industry, that, that's a message they want to hear. And it's much more useful than just going straight for the black books of legislation and saying thou must do it. Uh, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get some more input and um, we'll all help create a better society. So I wanted to throw another concrete issue into the mix here to, to think about. We've talked a lot about privacy, but the issue of detention without charge, which is another issue that comes up as part of these debates and, and considerations. So, Dominique, to you first, um, thinking particularly about our legal framework, legal protections that we might have, both protecting the public and protecting suspects, what are your thoughts on the the right of police to be able to detain people, for example, for 14 days without charge under certain circumstances? Is, is, is there a risk of arbitrary detention here? Is it a necessarily safeguard? How do you see it? Well, I think that... Um again, informed by the history of how that 14-day um, time limit came to be imposed on the legislation, um, that happened, as I recall, as a result of what happened to Mr Hanif back in 2007. And so prior to that, there was actually no limitation on the 
um, amount of time that a person could be held in detention without charge. So again, it shows the reactive nature of our system um, that we we have put some time limits now um, to try and say, look, we, we acknowledge that the security environment that we're in might require us to do things and infringe upon people's lives in a way that we wish that we didn't have to. But the, the key to making that work is to ensure that there are very strict safeguards around that. And again, but from recollection, that uh, particular form of detention is now supervised by um, a member of the judiciary. And so we have tried to ensure as best we can that um, these powers are being used responsibly. Um, also, it's worth noting that the ombudsman in the case of the police and the inspector general does keep a very close eye on the operational use of these powers. So in addition to the judiciary having um, a role in that particular case, we also have the independent executive um, watchdog making sure that these powers are being used as they're intended to be used. If you're asking me, would I prefer to live in a world where we didn't have to have that? I would say definitely yes, that I am uncomfortable as a, as a citizen um, living in a world where it's possible to be detained for that amount of time without being charged. But unfortunately, I just think it's it's one of the things that we have to accept. I accept it because I know that it's being regularly reviewed and, and looked at and that if, if we had come to that happy time, as Jacinta was referring to, where it's not necessary, then I would hope to take on Christian's point and really advocate to say, look, this, these powers are not being used, the threat environment's changed, we don't need this as part of our legal armour. But unfortunately, we're not at that stage at the moment. Jacinta, what do we know about the use of, of powers to, to detain for 14 days with, with our charge? Do we have any evidence, you know, anecdotal or otherwise, um, about the role that this has played in foiling terrorist attacks? Yeah, look, great question. Two two key things there. One is that whenever uh, police commissioners talk about these particular powers, um, preventative detention orders, but also control orders and so on, they talk about them as being things that uh, are almost a last resort. You know, there, there has to be a very high threshold and they talk about their deliberations in when they use the, these high-end elements in a careful way that gives me reassurance that um, not only is it being executed in the right spirit, but as Dominique's very importantly said, you know, you always need to check that. You need to inspect how are these things actually being used in practice. Um, the other thing is that, again, when it comes to this issue of preventing against a threat, uh, there is always um, going to be, in the case where something does go wrong, um, Burke Street, as an example, very quickly the debate becomes, the questions are, well, what do the authorities know about this person? And we saw, saw a lot of discussion about, well, you know, he had, he had his passport cancelled, um, therefore authorities knew about him, why wasn't he locked up? Uh, discussion about, well, why wasn't he on um, yeah, the pejorative term of a watch list? Uh, so there is a very high expectation of authorities being responsible for doing something and very little... Um, uh, the, the public doesn't look kindly upon authorities not doing something where they have where they have that. A similar a similar debate occurred around bail laws, of course, after the murder of Jill Ma. How is it that someone could be on bail? For- Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Or violent actions and be at liberty to to conduct a crime. Um, the the preventative detention um, element or and det- detaining um, for questioning without charge. Uh, these sorts of things are only to be used where there is the opportunity to get more information from a person, uh, and that's considered to be the best option for doing it. And where it's of a time critical nature, mm-hmm. because there may be risk of an attack. Interestingly, in terrorism, uh, one of the significant issues that's a little bit different from most other time crime types is that it's not just the one perpetrator who may be involved. So bringing someone in um, in order to question them and find out more about potentially another group, um, the principle is there, uh, the principle of this this legislation is there um, in order to protect the many from potential great harm. Christian... Obviously, I'm going to come to you now to ask about the ethical issues here, but I'm thinking well, they've about already com- been really talking about the ethical issues. <laughs> we have <Yeah>. indeed, <laughs> but I'm thinking particularly of a comment that that Jacinta made earlier with that example of the 15 year old who'd been in direct yes. contact with someone in the Middle East who'd been essentially grooming them to to, to carry out terrorist activities. Christian, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on these these issues that we need to consider, the trade-offs that we need to make around detention without charge particularly, and how we think about those issues when it's a minor, yeah. um, when, it's, when it's the 15-year-old. So I wanted to sort of pick up on something that Dominique also said, which is, I mean, one thing to think about in the preventive detention issue is how it interacts with the law more generally. Mm-hmm. Because the, the relevant thing here is that these people are being held without being charged, mm-hmm. right? But of course, the criminal law itself is is something that we change and is manipulated in various ways. And one of the things that has happened since 9-11 is this dramatic increase in various parts of the criminal law to treat to establish what were not crimes to be crimes, Mm -hmm. um, which means that so you have a broader range of offenses which you can in principle charge. Mm -hmm. But then in addition to that, you're trying to get further powers to detain people even when you don't have evidence to charge them of those crimes, which again require far less than it's sort of a complete imminent attack. If you actually look at the – the, the the acts that have been enacted in by parliaments in the US in the sorry not by parliaments in the US but in Australia and the and the UK for example yes. they they don't require imminence they don't require mm-hmm. it's actually a fairly um, loose standard by which something is at least chargeable um, so I think that we have to think about that and then the other thing to think about of course is what is the dynamic effect of having these mechanisms so on the one hand it's true they may play a preventive role. But these are things that are exaggerated and played up very much by recruiters of terrorists, right? That look, you really think that you could be treated as an equal in these societies. Well, look, they can lock you up without charging Mm. you. And it's very difficult to estimate just what these effects are, but they're quite significant. I think with the case of the minor, I guess one set of issues is whether or not somebody like that should be regarded as fully culpable and capable of being held guilty of a certain type of crime. That's one set of issue. Mm. As far as the preventive element, it doesn't seem to matter to me very much if you think that this is somebody who's about to 
uh, pose a significant risk that you have the same kinds of reasons to intervene that you would have if it was an adult. It may have some impact on to what extent you think that they're fully responsible for their crime, how you would deal with sentencing or whether or not even imprisonment made sense in this sort of case. But mm-hmm. And actually has been an issue in control orders because mm. the, the, the age has been reduced for control orders. And it, one of the interesting factors in the debate around that uh, is that uh, pretty much, I'm looking at Dominic, I think all parties... Um, all the authorities and, and uh, the committees said it's regrettable that it has to be That's exactly lowered, what they said. Yep. But the cases are showing that it is, is kids of those age who are involved. But as Christian noted, um, typically they haven't generated this themselves. Um, there's a familial involvement or, or others. So um, I'm, I'm just interested in um, when you're talking about the, the role of powers, it, it is actually important to recognise that just because something is in law, and I think it works quite well mm. in our common law system, that they're, they're, in principle, uh, something may be seen to be an offence, but it doesn't just live on the, the books of the law. It has to be tested. And I love Dominic's opening phrase of all the instruments of democratic institution. And this does happen. Uh, mm. As as um, as she's discussed, not only do we have the legislature, um, the legislature itself has a review and oversight mechanism. We do have independent mechanisms for review. And of course, we have the courts. So it may say this on the books, but uh, prosecutors and the, the legal team supporting them really have to weigh up, is this something that meets this offence? And that it, it's, it's pretty messy, it's pretty complicated, but that's democracy in action. One way of thinking about this issue as well is detaining someone is a form of hard treatment. It's, it's, it's equivalent to a kind of punishment, certainly. Um, so there are two different types of justifications that we can give for imposing hard treatment on people. One is that they've already done something that makes them liable to that sort of treatment or that we have some sort of lesser evil justification where we actually don't think that they've done something but nevertheless the consequences are so bad of not detaining mm-hmm. them. That um, and I think it's important to think about what kinds of justifications we have for detention in these cases because typically when it's a liability type justification, it's easier to justify detaining. If we mm. say, think that someone has done something that, you know, mm. perhaps not a chargeable offense, but it's something where it's really proportionate now to impose this sort of treatment on them, that's quite different than when we're saying, well, they really haven't done something, but nevertheless, we're really concerned about the risks and it's sort of, it's, a, it's an evil, but a lesser evil to detain them. And that's one of the big shifts that we've seen in the post 9-11 environment in Commonwealth um, criminal law and the, the, the penumbra of, of preventative law that's around it. We have become much more preventative as a legal system mm. since 9-11. And that has had significant civil liberties implications. So what I would say there is given that we have limited abilities to use our constitution to be able to um, arrest that trend if that's a problem for you, you have to make sure as a citizen that you are intervening at the stage at which those laws are being enacted, at the stage at which they're being reviewed, so that you can, if, if that balance between liberties and security you think is not appropriate, then that's that's the the best opportunity Australians have to be able to shift it. So what's your thought, Dominic, on how, how your average person does that, how they intervene outside an election cycle, perhaps beyond protest? Well, no, I think, the, I, what are your I mean, the, the um, parliamentary joint... Uh, Joint Committee, because they do so many reviews, will take submissions from anyone. And they've become much, much um, better in the 15 years that I've been looking at them at making it very easy to make a submission. And those submissions are taken seriously. Um, So that's one way to do it. You know, again, 
there's nothing like writing to your local member, emailing your local member, getting in touch with your local representatives, making democracy work for us. That's the, the, that's the institutional structure we have to make this balance work well for us as a society and it's really important that we use it. Hmm. Look, I've, I've testified to the committees and anyone obviously can make a written submission and as Dominique said, we, we know how many have been made because they're published on their website and we can read them um, unless, of course, it's a, it's a classified or withheld or whatever. But um, members of the public can and when I've gone in person to testify, most of the people sitting there in the room ready to testify to the committee are members of the community, uh, individuals and community organisations. Mm. So um, I, I was very heartened to see the number of people the last time I was in there looking at it. I want to return now to a, a, an issue that we discussed towards the beginning of the podcast, and that is whether we're treating the issue of terrorism with the amount of attention that it actually deserves, given the amount of people that it actually seems to harm in Australia. So a very common argument that you'll hear whenever there's an attack of any kind in Australia is that's far outweighed, for instance, by the number of victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Where is our policy response to preventing domestic violence in the same way? So I guess I'm interested in what you think of this argument. I'd like to hear from Christian about it. Is, is Australia placing a disproportionate amount of attention on terrorism or is, is there some other justification for why we might be treating it like, it, like we are? Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think... I. To return to a point that Jacinta made earlier, I do think that it's misleading if you – in trying to think about whether or not we're paying too much or too little attention to the risk of terrorism to focus simply on the successful cases of terrorist attacks and using that as your baseline because it may well be that absent various control orders, absent various initiatives, the toll would have been much, much higher. If that's true, then – Surely it's a good thing that we actually are employing these measures and that we're not. I mean, I'm assuming that the effect would be dramatic. Um, but I do think that there is one thing that is probably pretty important that is a message that is conveyed by this, which is that, you know, we always have to think about what the costs are of various ways of making us safe from certain types of risks. And obviously, when you think about domestic violence, um, that's a clear case where you have privacy issues that come into conflict with issues about welfare and about worries about people within families and their delicate balance and they're things that we kind of live uneasily with. Um, and I think that's true of terrorism. That's true of, of traffic safety. I mean, I could tell you probably that if we made the speed limits 20 kilometers an hour everywhere in Canberra, there'd be we would save a number of people. And if we did it throughout Australia, we would save many, 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 many lives, right? And then the question would just be is that is that a sensible type of, of restriction? Um, but I also think that it's it's probably pretty important to give broader context whenever we are reporting on a particular event that happens. Um, I was re recently reading a book on on terrorism where uh, the author made a, an interesting observation that when you when you hear about sort of a very unusual sporting achievement, you almost always get context. So if somebody bats for God knows how many runs, <laughs> they'll say how rare this event is and how it's only happened so often. And so, Whereas in fact, when you actually have a terrorist tag, often that sort of context is not sort of given. Mm. And there's sort of a, a rush to sort of, again, look at it as sort of a, a harbinger or something that's sort of highly predictive of future events rather than as an outlier that might be put in context. And I think that sort of as members of the media and so far as we are public 
public intellectuals that it's probably pretty important to try to give a bit more of that context. I might just add to that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll teasingly say to look to my philosopher friend to describe the there's a particular logical fallacy that says, well, this can't be important because that's more important. And yeah. uh, I, I work very closely with police and have done so for years and I have never met a police uh, officer who has said, oh, well, that you, you know, you can't look at that crime type because the other crime type's more important or it's less important. It's, it's not a zero-sum game. Um, domestic violence is important and a, and a lot of uh, resources are being put into it and more should be put into it. Terrorism is also a threat. It is also a crime. It is also something that the public has an expectation uh, that people will be doing something about. But the context issue that, that Christian brought up is incredibly important and I, um, I'm... Um, Often surprised, I've been commenting publicly on counterterrorism for four or so years now, and I'm very surprised the way that um, many commentators will uh, just uh, pass information that has been put out by a terrorist organisation as fact, mm. um, their justification as fact without any context around it. And it is important, to, absolutely vital to have that context. And I think a sporting analogy will go over very well in Australia about why that's important. Uh, look, and I'll use an example that a few years ago, there was a terrible uh, attack uh, claimed by the Taliban uh, on a, um, a playground in Lahore in Pakistan. And I was upset and I mean usual, you know, horrified that it, when, it was, when it was reported, it was reported simply as this terrible attack has happened. Many families and children were killed. And the Taliban said um, that they claimed responsibility and that this was an attack on Christians, as if that, as if that was okay, firstly. Um, but any cursory look, uh, and in the world of Google, it's pretty easy to have a cursory look, showed that there were no attacks on Christians. Everyone who was dead was a, was a Muslim. Everyone was a Pakistani. Um, there is no justification for attacking children and parents at a playground on a holiday. But our major media outlets and the ticker tape was just saying this without any other context. Um, the important thing is to remember in this, firstly, provide context uh, and tell the news. And we know that our news is very time poor now. But the second is understanding something very important about terrorism, that Terrorism's been around for hundreds of years in various forms, and the single most powerful tool of terrorists is propaganda. They don't, they're not a democratic, responsible government constituency. Um, they're not doing things because they have great power. They're doing what they can as a, a, a reasonably powerless element to just be able to hurt where they can and get notoriety, get funding uh, and get recruits. Uh, so they will claim, as, as ISIS claimed, responsibility for the Burke Street attack. And we, you know, based on the kind of language that they used in previous cases, calling someone a soldier of the caliphate just means they checked with their people, yet we know him. Uh, not that they actually did anything, but they will claim the credit for it because it benefits their cause. And just to return to Christian's point in context, it's really important to consider that context when we're making these laws. So I've written about the fact that Australia tends to make its ma major changes to its counterterrorism law framework in what I've called the shadow of a crisis. So we do it after we're horrified and shocked by some um, horrible attack. And that's Probably, it's one of the worst times that you could actually make this sort of legislation because everybody's frightened. Politicians, for good reasons, are trying to be seen to be doing something and it makes it very difficult to take the sort of ethical considerations that a Christian has been raising today and the sort of policy considerations that Jacinta has discussed 
and put them into the mix with what the law can actually do to help um, to deal with this threat. So context is really important for our legislators as well as they go about this important task of making, refining and constructing this legal framework. I'd make a slight comment on that, which is that we've had a fairly consistent approach to reviewing legislation. And as you know, there's been the the famous 10 tranches of of legislation to date uh, and a lot of work done in the states and territories as well. So it's not always just in in reaction to a terrorist event, but uh, it only really becomes something that is publicly talked about and messaged uh, and, and explain why we need these when there has been an attack. And that's, I think that's something that... um, Governments, as well as you know, academics and others, need to think about is how do we get the message out in an, in normal time about what this is. And even um, you know, Dominic and I have talked about when you're trying to research in this area, to just to find one list that says here is here are all the pieces of legislation that you have come out. You can't do it. Uh, doesn't, doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Um, one public list that says here are all the terrorist attacks that have been disrupted or have occurred in Australia. That's not that's not put out and easy to, to get. So we spend a lot of time pulling together our own lists amongst the research community. And um, if, if we're doing that, well, that means there's a gap. If we have to do that, then, of course, the public can't be expected, who aren't focusing on this all of the time, to have a clear and easy understanding of what the context is, why these things are in place, how they're being managed and evaluated and whether more needs to be done. This has been such a rich discussion about the complexities at play here. And to me, what's clear is that there there are, as we said at the very beginning, trade-offs to think about here. Not necessarily a zero-sum game, but certainly trade-offs. And Jacinta, I think you made that excellent point that just because something's a crime, it doesn't mean another thing isn't investigated as a crime. But of course, resources come into play. What's prioritised? You know, whose whose civil liberty liberties do we take account of? So as we as we wrap this up, I'd be really interested in hearing from each of you, not the silver bullet or the the answer, but if you've got that, that would be great. (laughs) But perhaps we could go for something a little simpler. What are the two or three principles that you think we need to keep in mind when we're weighing up those trade-offs between public safety and and, and civil liberties? Um, Dominique, would you like to start? Well, I'm going back to where I started, that um, we should have faith in our democratic institutions they work well. That doesn't mean we can't improve them, but they work well when people are invested in them. So um, John Howard said it um, you know, right back at the beginning of all of this, that it's our democratic traditions and processes that help to, that play a part in keeping us safe. And I think that's a really important um, aspect to, to this whole story. Just yeah. interview well, the what a, what a great What a great comment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I endorse that. One thing that I'd observe, and it flows from this about our democratic institutions and how Australia works, is... Um, and it might sound a bit trite, but uh, learn and understand how our system works. Don't assume that our system works the way um, uh, TV and movies portray the American system. And I say that cautiously because they don't quite portray it the way it works either, or that we work like like the UK because we don't. Uh, we don't at all. We are very, very, we're a very, very different legal system. We're a very different democratic system and it works well. So, uh, and it, look, this goes for anyone who's commenting on it, really understand what, how does our constitution work? What is the role of the states and territories? And um, get that 101 of, 
of how these work and just get involved. Um, if you don't feel like making a submission, go along to a public inquiry, uh, go to Parliament House and be there when the debates are on or listen to it um, on podcast or the radio or whatever. Uh, you know, we, we can get involved and Australia's got a really good story to tell. I will, I'll throw in one little comment. Don't just believe me. Um, the United Nations Counterterrorism Committee, which regularly reviews how countries are going in implementing UN Security Council resolutions on CT, uh, did a review, um, a, public, a report published last year, 2017, on uh, what countries were doing to counter foreign fighters. And Australia was listed as one of only six countries in the world that had actually undertaken their responsibility in trying to do something to bring foreign fighters to justice. And when you think of all the countries that are members of the General Assembly who agreed with this and said, yep, we will, only six countries. Three of those... Uh, Australia, uh, Canada and the United States were called out for for, um, for credit in the CTC, UNCTC report and they said they've done this, they've got strong powers but they have vibrant multicultural communities, active civil society and vibrant democratic institutions that make this work. And Christian, finally to you, any, any principles when we're, when we're thinking about informing sure. debates? Well, I would just say don't assume that there's some really easy relationship between restricting civil liberties and promoting public safety. There are lots of restrictions of civil liberties that can erode public safety. Don't think of these trade-offs as simply trade-offs between liberty and security. Think about them as trade-offs also between security from different sorts of a threat. Mm -hmm. The idea that you might be falsely held and were falsely imprisoned is just as much of a security risk as the fact that you might be harmed by a private person acting in, independently of one another. And then the other, and this is the really tricky one, try as best you can to come to an, a better understanding of what the objective risks mm -hmm. of different types of activities are. Um, again, that's very difficult. But I suspect that if you actually asked people and you did surveys and what they thought that the chances that they or someone they know would be the victim of various different types of harms, they would tend to have wildly inaccurate perceptions of those. And that, I think, is something that we have to take quite seriously when we're thinking about making law, that we don't mm. over-exaggerate certain types of risks when, by enacting legislation, we may be increasing other types of risks. Well, that is all we have time for today, unfortunately. But I just want to say a big thank you to all of you. It was a really fantastic discussion from my point of view. And I thought we really teased out some of the key issues between this between this debate. Um, I'd like to thank Christian Barry, Jacinta Carroll, and Dominique Dalaposa. Thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the great questions. And to our listeners, please stay around. Sharon and I are going to be discussing some of your questions and comments on our previous podcasts and articles. So hang in there for that. Welcome back. And another big thank you to our guests there for that excellent discussion. I've still got Sharon Bessel here with me. Sharon, we touched on so many issues in that discussion just now. I wonder if there was one particular point that you found particularly insightful that you want to talk about now. Oh, look, that was such a great discussion. I can't wait to listen to that pod again. Um, that was it was amazing. Um, look, there were so many takeaway messages from that, but and and things to ponder. But to me, a really powerful takeaway was just the importance of context. There are some issues that really are trigger issues, and for good reason. And I think the kind of awful event that we saw in Melbourne a few days ago is is one of those issues. Um, and I don't think we should be anything other than horrified and, and outraged. But the importance of putting those issues into context, I think, really matters. So, yeah, I think that was the thing I'd take away from it. Yeah, I really um, was struck by something that Dominique said 
I just hadn't made the connection before, but we try so much in policymaking to be doing preventative policy. In fact, we just had a whole podcast on that recently. And when it comes to terrorism, obviously it makes enormous sense to be trying to be preventative. We can't just wait until these incidents occur and then respond to them. But there's an obvious trade-off there is that when you are trying to be preventative, by necessity, you're probably going to infringe on people's civil liberties much more than if you were just responding after the after the fact. So I guess that that's something that I um, I hadn't considered before and that preventative policy makes so much sense, but it does come with its own set of costs. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, it's the case absolutely when we think about issues around terrorism and, and countering terrorist attacks. But there are lots of other issues where the same kinds of, of complexities are at play. And I think domestic violence is one of them. Um, child protection is another. You know, I think as soon as you get into to com- complex policy territory, you face these really difficult issues. But yeah, it was, a, it was a great discussion. Well, that's what Sharon and I thought of it. But to our listeners, we're really keen to hear what you thought of the discussion. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please keep sending those questions and comments in. And while we're on the topic of national security, if you're interested in exploring national security further, then perhaps you might want to check out the range of degrees on offer here at the ANU Crawford School as part of the National Security College. So you can check out nsc.crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study to see what's on offer, or alternatively, you can just put National Security College into Google and you'll see everything there. But if doing a master's or a PhD sounds a bit much, then instead you could also subscribe to the National Security Podcast. Each fortnight, Chris Farnham brings you great insights and interviews with leading figures in the world of regional security. Just a few months ago, he, a few weeks ago, sorry, he spoke to the former Director of National Intelligence in the United States, James Clapper. Fantastic interview. You can find it by searching for the National Security Podcast wherever you get your pods. So we're now up to the part of the podcast where we discuss some of the feedback and comments that you have sent in in the past, and we really appreciate you sending those comments in. So the first piece that we're going to look at was one that we published just in the last week by Elizabeth Buchanan. It's called How Russia is Fueling Asia. And in that piece, Elizabeth looked at how Moscow's Moscow's new foreign energy strategy puts it on a collision course with Australia and our own energy strategy goals. It's a chapter from Securing Our Energy, a new publication from the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. And on Twitter, we got a comment from Nathan who said, the priority for Russia is to control as much as possible Beijing's influence over its resource potential. Perhaps I could hear from Sharon on this one. So we obviously are seeing in the Asia-Pacific big geopolitical um, contestations between states like emerging states like China and also states like Russia, which are trying to regain influence, especially over energy policy. What do you what do you make of some of this this tension that we're seeing in the region there, Sharon? Yeah, look, I think this is it's such an is- interesting issue. There are so many issues that come out of this. And you see this playing out daily as, you know, Trump tries to reposition America in a way that makes it great, but may not necessarily hold its position as a great power. You see Russia clearly wanting to be a great power, um, and China is 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 clearly emerging as as a global leader. So we really are seeing this global realignment. Um, I think we we also see you know very recently Macron's comments in um, in relation to a European army. You know we're not talking about energy there, but uh, a, a an EU army and and how that's needed to defend against uh, potential enemies of Europe. And the list of countries, which perhaps was a little mischievous that that Macron put on the table, um, you know, the United States alongside Russia, I think just speaks to 
the tumultuous geopolitics that we see at the moment. What's really interesting when we think about um, Elizabeth Buchanan's work is the way in which energy policy has become so central to international relations. So you know, that that's one that's really worth listening to and, and pondering over. Well, the next few comments that I want to discuss relate to the podcast that we released last week. It was called Rusted Off, How Rural Voters in Australia Are Taking Policy Change Into Their Own Hands. And that podcast was with Gabriel Chan, Peter Holding, Dennis Ginevan and Carolyn Hendricks. In that podcast, they took a look at how rural Australia is leading a political shift away from the major parties and is actually forging a new way of doing democracy. We've been really blown away by the response to this podcast. It's been very positive and some really generous comments um, in keeping with the spirit of the views of the panellists. On Twitter, we had a comment from John who said, brilliant discussion, practical, balanced, positive, very encouraging. Christy, also on Twitter, said, a great conversation about rural voters in this podcast episode is inspired by Gabriel Chan's book. Great to hear Peter Holding's views on leadership too. And in that podcast, we spoke to Dennis Ginevan, who has played a, a central role in the campaign called Voices for Indi. And on Twitter, Voices for Indi themselves said, great to be part of this podcast. Have a listen, some very interesting observations. Sharon, I want to hear your thoughts on a final comment I'm going to raise, which is from Graham on Facebook. Graham wrote, did farmers really think the LNP would do anything for them? So by the LNP, he obviously means the Liberal National Party. What do you think about that? Well, I guess it's it's hard to know what farmers think about any particular political party. But I think Graham's comment is well made that there there seems to be, at least from someone sitting in the city and looking at all of this play out, an increasing disconnect between farmers and the horrendous challenges that they're facing and the political parties that claim to, to act on their behalf. And I guess to me, there's no stronger issue than that that speaks to that than climate change. You know, you think about the number of farmers that spoke out about or have spoken out about the drought and the need for forward-looking policy to address climate change and farmers making the connection between drought and, and climate change. And the way in which um, particularly the conservative side of politics has completely disregarded those concerns, has you know, driven on with a coal-based approach to, to, to energy policy um, and aimed to discredit anything around climate, climate science. So to me, that's such a telling example. I think farmers have a right to place hope in the, the political leaders that claim to represent them. So I think they could be forgiven for thinking that they would be well represented, but I think that they probably also rightly feel they haven't been. So it's a, a pretty dire situation. But I also wanted to, to comment on, you know, again, I'm with John on what a brilliant podcast that that particular one was. Um, but a, an article in The Guardian recently by Gay Alcorn that Martin Pierce has been tweeting about um, was, was pointing out the number of young women who are running um, for, for political office in Victoria, inspired by Cathy McGowan, and looking to carve out a space where their interests and the interests of their communities are being represented. I guess if you look at the National Party, the leadership of the National Party recently, you'd understand why women, young and old, rural and urban, don't feel they'd be very well represented. So I think while it looks a little dire in some areas, what we take away from, from what's happening on the ground in Victoria and the, the, the points that were made in that podcast is that there's really cause for optimism here. You know, people are claiming back um, their right to have their interests represented and represented well. I think it's definitely a matter of watch this space. We've got an election coming up early next year in Australia and I'm 
definitely interested to see what's going to be happening in rural Australia on, on this topic. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. So the final podcast we want to take a quick look at was one a few weeks back. It was called Why Prevention Policies Fail. It was with Paul Keeney and Gemma Carey. And in that episode, they took a look at why policies fail, why that might not always be a bad thing, and how to break the vicious cycle of enthusiasm and disenchantment in policymaking. We had a comment on Twitter from Evelyn. Evelyn wrote, Prevention, doing a lot to make something not happen. Not doing it also makes things not happen. So you'll have the same result doing nothing. Ta-da, great policy in brackets, failure. So I must admit, I'm not sure I completely understand this comment. I've been trying to get my head around it. I I could be completely wrong here, but I think perhaps what Evelyn is trying to say is that policymaking is so difficult because we're trying to affect um, events that we don't always understand the, the causal mechanisms behind. So sometimes making a policy can uh, can affect change and sometimes not making a policy can also affect change. And at the end of the day, maybe it's a tongue-in-cheek comment saying, why even bother with policy in the first place? That was my take on it. I could be completely wrong. Sharon, what did you think? I think I could think myself into a philosophical spiral on this one and I probably need a couple of glasses of wine to fully understand it because I think then it would, would become very clear <laughs> But the one point I would make, and I'm not sure if this directly relates to, to what Evelyn is, is saying, is that doing something and failing does result in something important if we're clever about it. And that's what we learn. And so um, I, I think there is an argument for prevention policy. But I think there's also an argument for actually accepting that some policies will simply fail and taking, taking away the messages of, of, of what we do better and what we do differently next time. Policymaking is really complex. We heard that in, in the discussion that we've just had. There's no clear right and wrong and the evidence is often really conflicted. Um, so we will necessarily fail from time to time. And we will fail at one point in time and then be successful another. But it's what do we learn from this process and how do we get closer to getting it right so the policy is acting in the interests of, of the people of the, the country on which those on, on whose behalf those policies are being made. And of course, very possible that we failed to understand that comment properly. So please let us know if we did and we'll try and address it later. And I'll bring my thoughts back after a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> So a big thank you to everyone who commented and a reminder, please keep sending them in. That also includes suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. And we always love to hear your suggestions for what we could discuss. And you have a real chance of shaping what appears on the podcast in the future. You could reach us on Twitter, APPS Policy Forum. On Facebook, we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or just shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, as I hope you did, if you're still here with me now, chances are you did, please consider leaving us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds of your time, and all you need to do is just click on that fifth star. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod, but until then, from me, Nikki Lovegrove, bye for now. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com